Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Helgi Mackey, one of the co-authors of the book, Trauma-Informed Law, a primer for lawyer resilience and healing. Helgi, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So I don't think this will be a total surprise to any of my listeners, but we're talking about trauma-informed law. So just at the top, we may be covering some upsetting topics, but we're also talking about how people can be addressing them. So uh, I'm hopeful that this won't be triggering to anyone, but just keep that in mind. And Helgi, how did you come to get this book together? I say get this book together because you're not the sole author. There are many people involved. But uh, tell me a little bit about the beginning of this project. Yeah, this project started when I co-wrote an article with Professor Tess Sheldon, who specializes in mental health law uh, here in Canada for the Supreme Court Law Review. And we looked at trauma-informed lawyering for supporting human rights in terms of helping clients and also lawyers and other legal professionals through that process, because there are a lot of upsetting topics that can come up in the context of human rights. And that's part of the background. The other part is, alongside my conventional legal career, I worked in a conventional and corporate law firm for over 15 years and did a, had a very conventional practice. I also did some social justice work, especially around topics relating to interpersonal violence, including sexual assault. And then as part of that, I had a time where I was observing some court processes and it was a bit shocking as well as interesting to me how often the process in court seems to escalate a situation and make it the experience a little more intense for everyone involved as opposed to orienting towards more de-escalation and problem solving, even when there's adversity involved. So uh, it was a number of years in the making, if that makes sense. And tell me a little bit about your three co-editors. Yeah, absolutely. So I am based in Canada. I also was called to the New York bar and worked in New York for a time. And my other Canadian colleague, her name is Myrna McCollum. She is based in British Columbia. She originally grew up in Saskatchewan, and she is a lawyer by background and is also uh, an Indigenous lawyer and has worked broadly in social justice as well as other issues relating to her various areas of practice. And she has a wonderful podcast called The Trauma-Informed Lawyer. So that's my Canadian colleague. And then in the United States, we worked on the book with J. Kim Wright, who is one of the founders of the Integrative Law Movement. And she has a website on integrative law and two books, actually, published by the ABA Lawyers as Peacemakers and uh, other publications. Kim is wonderful. She teaches broadly on conscious contracts as well as integrative law. And then Marjorie Floristal uh, has been based in California and she teaches international law, contract law, and also immigration law. She worked with the Clinton administration uh, at one point in time and has also done work in relation to immigration law, including work in uh, in the country of Haiti. And so she is a law professor, works with law students, and has that um, law student lens. Kim brings the overall legal profession lens. My orientation is towards practicing lawyers as well as resilience practices. And um, Myrna has uh, a, a broad systems change as well as trauma-informed practice tips approach. So that's where we come from. 
Before you and I started recording, you asked me what drew me to this book. And one of the things was actually the subtitle because it took me by surprise. And I think it might also take some of my listeners by surprise. The title, Trauma-Informed Law, I think for many attorneys, their very first thought is, oh, yes, I deal with traumatized people all the time. My clients, many of them have been through various traumatic incidents, and I I don't want to make it worse, so this will be focused on how I can approach my clients. But this subtitle is A Primer for Lawyer Resilience and Healing, and it certainly does address ways that you can be approaching your clients to make things easier for them, to do no further harm, etc., but it is also focused very much so on what lawyers, what law students, what judges, what the profession as a whole can be doing. So this is not just how do I help my client who has trauma. So would love to hear more from you about that when you are approaching people during the research part of this book, um, when you were talking to lawyers, law is a difficult profession, and it can be very challenging for lawyers individually. What were you discovering lawyers reporting back about their own traumas, not just that may might have happened to them personally, in just their personal lives, but as part of the work. Yeah, absolutely. As part of the work, we, in in creating the book, we created a survey. And so we received over 50 responses to that. And then we also received contributions from legal professionals in terms of their, from their own work and their stories. And so there's definitely a theme of well-being impact and overall impact in terms of career satisfaction, personal and professional, personal and professional impact from adversity, right? So as a lawyer, we're basically conflict managers, right? And so you can think about that in a very transactional way and think of it in terms of paper pushing or, you know, saying the right things in court, best interests of the client, but it's a lot broader than that, right? So Trauma transmits, and that is something that is poorly understood about trauma, despite over 40 years of evidence-based peer-reviewed research around the topic. And so it's better, in my view, to think of lawyers as firefighters or other public servants, or perhaps even a boxer in a ring if you're a litigator. And so you would never think in the context of those professions, those jobs, that only the person on the other end, the person in the fire or the the opponent in the boxing ring, that, that only that person is affected, right? Or that only others in the ring are affected. It affects us as professionals. It transmits. It transmits biologically, psychologically, and socially, and probably on other levels too. But that's what we know from the peer-reviewed evidence. So that's why. And there was a quote uh, that I'm just going to read really quickly because I thought, oh, there are some people who are going to hate hearing this. You can't think yourself out of trauma. Analytical response is insufficient. As lawyers and law students, we've been trained to learn only with our minds. But there are other epistemologies, other ways of knowing and interacting with the world. And I do think, you know, part of law school training seems to be, okay, identify the problem, now the solution, tick these boxes, do this checklist, this is how we're going to go forward. And as you point out, trauma does not respond that way. So if you come across resistance or lawyers feeling kind of at sea because they they can't just think their way out of it? Yeah, I think this is a misunderstanding and a lack of 
awareness in the profession, you know, we have a very focused learning approach in law school. And so we talk about all of the issues and learn all of the various practices and rules and cases without understanding that we are conflict managers, that one of our main roles is problem solving and also leading and decision making. And so we're relying heavily on thinking our cognition. And there are preconditions to good cognition. There are preconditions to good decision-making, strong leadership. We need to be more prepared than gladiators in a, in a ring, in an arena. And so there's something that has been referenced in the legal community, gladiator mentality among litigators, right? Where all you need is your sword and you're good to go. And so that is actually false from a a health perspective, and really any other perspective in the humanities. There are preconditions, right? You need to have a calm nervous system, right? You need to have a psychology that is informed about states of being other than fear, and you need to be able to relate to people, right? You need to be able to empathize, understand another person's perspective. So fear-based thinking, if we only rely on that, that's, that's not lawyering. We need a lot of preconditions to be satisfied in order for the best thinking, the best decision-making, the best problem-solving to happen. When that might also come into play as well when you're talking about, okay, well, you need to be aware of what produces the best thinking and, you know, what trauma can do to the brain, to the nervous system, to a multitude of our processes, the way that Many lawyers are taught to, for example, interview complainants or assess credibility. You may be relying on someone behaving in a way they are not able to behave because, you know, as, as it says in the book, more memory formed in traumatic circumstances may not be linear in nature and the resulting narrative may also not be linear. You need to be aware also of how trauma might be impacting your client's ability to work with you in the cases. So I did very much enjoy what you had to say about helping your clients and understanding what your clients might be going through. Yeah, it's so interesting that in law school, we're taught to think in terms of the reasonable person. And that reasonable person is not thought of in context. That reasonable person is really thought of as being in a vacuum, right? And so when adversity happens, when trauma happens, an individual is not in a vacuum, no matter who they are. They are in an overwhelming context. So what is trauma? Judith Herman defines trauma as an experience that overwhelms our capacity to cope, our normal capacity to cope. So what is a reasonable person when they are, their normal capacities to cope are overwhelmed, right? When their neurobiology, when their psychology, when their relational capacity is overwhelmed. And so if we shift our thinking in that way, a simple example, what's a reasonable person in a car accident, right? Versus, or a reasonable, unfortunately, this is a, a unfortunate scenario we don't want to see in, or for it to happen in real life, but a reasonable pedestrian who's been struck by a car. And so when we look at court transcripts, we'll see lawyers and even also judges asking questions like, do you remember the color of the car? Is that really a, a reasonable thing to expect someone to remember when they are fearing for their lives or perhaps even running or otherwise moving out of the way of life-threatening danger? So 
when we speak with someone who is an expert in that field, they would say, oh, goodness, no, this is a traumatic situation. They're focusing on how do I avoid this danger? They're not going to remember the color of the car. We know about fight, flight, and many people may also be familiar with freeze, but they may not know about the fawn response. And I think that if you are a lawyer with a client who seems especially eager to please or agreeing to everything and you're like, well, this isn't actually helpful, please, you know, <laughs> tell me what you want or, or tell me more about this, not just what you think I want to hear, that might be confusing to them, but that actually is also a very natural trauma response. I think that hearing a little bit more about the four types of response might be might be helpful for listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So the four types of response, you can think of, let's use the boxing ring analogy for this, right? So let's say that you're in a ring with someone and you face someone who is larger than you, right? You might try to fight at first, but you may realize, okay, there is a, a power or, or size differential here. So maybe then I need to try to flee. But if there's something in your way, that strategy soon runs out. And you may say, okay, I need to not provoke this person. I need to freeze, right? In order to numb myself, in order to not antagonize this opponent, and then if that doesn't work, it's possible in order to survive. Remember, the orientation is to survive no matter what. That is our biological, psychological orientation wired in. Then another option is to what's called fawn, which is people-pleasing appeasement, right? So these make sense when you think of it in terms of that survival context, that orientation, that survive no matter what. But if you take that away and you look at, from, at it from the outside as if it's in a vacuum, it may not make sense that, you know, for instance, someone talks to another person after they've already been assaulted or harmed by that person, right? But if we look at it from the perspective of, oh, fawn helps me to survive, the client may fear retribution, they may fear something else happening. So in their mind, in that context, it makes sense to connect again, to have a some type of non-threatening relation. And there's also something that's part of freeze that is called collapse-submit, where basically it's a kind of deep freeze. So if we think of it in terms of a boxing ring or even, you know, you, you see advice about how to survive a bear attack. Well, these steps still apply, right? You're, you're going to try and negotiate in terms of your position relative to the bear. You're going to try and run. You're going to try and freeze. Maybe you're going to throw food at the bear, hope that works. And if it doesn't, you're going to play dead. So it makes sense in that context. What happens in a courtroom or a legal office is we forget the context. We didn't learn about the context. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our advertisers. When we return, I'll still be talking with Helgi Mackey, co-editor of Trauma-Informed Law, a primer for lawyer resilience and healing. Welcome back. Helgi, we have talked about clients. Uh, we have talked about lawyers experiencing their own traumas. Let's talk about vicarious trauma. I think that it is a very natural reaction to say, oh, well, 
you know, let's say that you are an attorney who deals with domestic violence cases and you say, oh, no, what my clients have been through is trauma. I don't have trauma. This isn't bad enough to count. It's just that I can't sleep and I am having trouble connecting with my partner romantically. And, you know, I am diving into work and answering emails at three in the morning. But I'm but that's not real trauma. So let's talk about, first of all, you know, no one gets no one gets an award for who has the most trauma. We should address all kinds. And second, let's talk about the danger signals of vicarious trauma so that our listeners can be aware of it both for themselves and maybe their coworkers if they if they notice any signs. If you work in a situation in a practice area or otherwise with clients or other people affected by trauma, whether that is conflict in the world that's going on or in your specific practice area, you know, you may not be on the direct receiving end of what is threatening, of what is dangerous. But that doesn't mean that you are completely separate from the conflict. There's a trauma expert named Dr. Alicia Moreland-Capoya, who I think has a great analogy for trauma, which is it's a fear alarm in our brains, in our bodies, that's that's going off, it won't stop. And so if you are constantly looking at, for instance, graphic evidence, or if you're dealing with clients who are in a state of distress because there is something urgent happening to them that's affecting their rights, or if you work with colleagues who are impacted by the legal process in terms of being conflict managers, they're dealing with a difficult case or quote, difficult people, what happens is your fear alarm is going off. Just like it would if you see someone else involved in some type of one of these analogies we've used, right? Whether it's a traffic accident or a fire or, you know, being chased by a bear. If we witness that, if we witness one of those scenes, our inner impulse is to move away from that threat, And that means that we see it as a threat. We identify with that situation. And so in our brains, we have mirror neurons. They allow us to empathize in the same way that we would, they allow us to cry at a movie if we see something happening to a character on a screen. So that translates into real life as well. So if something is happening around us that is threatening, we can't stop our brains unless we are conscious of it and aware of this trauma model that we talk about in the book. We can't just say, oh, you know, I'm going to bypass that. That just has, that has nothing to do with me. That's great that you can think that in the moment, but understanding that deeply within your brain, your body is a totally different matter. And so let's talk about burnout because I feel like I hear much more often people in the legal profession talking about burnout than I do trauma. Are they related? Are they um, a consequence of, of each other? It seems to me like burnout is very much part of this. Yeah, absolutely. They're cousins. That's what I would say. Uh, trauma has a lot, a lot of cousins like grief, like burnout, like compassion fatigue. And so for burnout, it's interesting that we don't hear about traumatic burnout or adversity-related burnout. So for instance, the burnout that came from the pandemic for many people, that's not necessarily regular burnout. There was something overwhelming that happened in our shared social context. And so burnout, There's there are more details in the book. There's a section on burnout. It is an overwhelm. It can sometimes be a more constant, low-grade overwhelm, like 
relentless use of our brains or relentlessness or of our workload or relentlessness of too much to do in our practices, which is something that may apply to trauma. And yet we may use that as a euphemism. It may be easier to say burnout than to say, oh, wow, you know what? Actually, the pandemic affected me. I was also in fear. It was also putting me in a state of freeze in my body. I also felt like I wanted to drink wine every night instead of, you know, going to bed earlier. And so it's easier to talk about burnout than it is trauma. Sometimes we associate trauma with concepts around weakness or victim perpetrator, all of that. And so they are related. So it's important to ask, okay, so you're experiencing burnout. You connect to the concept of burnout. What was happening around that burnout? How did it happen? What else was overwhelming there? Did it overwhelm your capacities to cope in a different way as well as generalized exhaustion and feeling like you're out of gas? Well, Helgi, certainly in the book, you do address the healing portion, what to do after uh, you identify that you have experienced uh, trauma, how to uh, help your clients um, when you see that, you know, they've been traumatized, the healing portion there. But one thing that I really thought was valuable in the book is you and your co-editors talk about the need to establish plans and teams ahead of this to start as early as law school saying, hey, this is a very difficult profession and you can expect to run into traumatizing situations, build a team, build a plan before you even enter. And, you know, for people already in the profession, no better day than today. But could you talk about that, how we help build teams to help us handle these things and to encourage resilience? Yeah, I think in law school and our profession generally, it's the classic shoemaker doesn't make shoes for themselves situation. So, you know, we specialize in managing conflict and mitigating damage, yet we have, uh, we aren't encouraged to have really any awareness of damages that happen to ourselves as professionals or any mitigation strategy. So if you went into any other service profession, whether that is, you know, health or relating to professional services or any other professional realm, there is a strategy around loss and stressed resources, right? And so it's actually astonishing to me that there is no plan, that we aren't encouraged to have a plan because it is inevitable in law that you're going to lose at some point, that your clients will lose, that there will be damage. And so it makes about as much sense to not have a plan in law as it would be to not have a plan if you were in environmental resource management. Would you have no plan if you were constantly managing you know, a, a forest or some other ecological system? If you were managing disasters, would you have no plan B? And so we actually were never encouraged to have any type of alternative plan, backup plan, anything like that at all. And it's astonishing to me. And I think many lawyers, the first response might might be, oh, but confidentiality. You know, there are, I can't share many things about what I do at work every day. So what are some examples um, that we can give people for thinking more outside the box, how you can still follow the model rules uh, of professional conduct, but still make sure that you're getting help, you're getting assistance where you need it? 
Right. So this is that what I call the unicorn myth in law. Oh, what I do is so specific. I'd have to share details. Everything is tailored. There would need to be something specifically for me or my practice. And so what we found in writing the book is that no practice area at all across all legal uh, practices in law is unaffected by trauma, is unaffected by adversity, is unaffected by loss. So you don't necessarily need to think in terms of cases and details and amounts and dates and those types of facts, we need to think not in terms of facts, but in terms of concepts and themes relating to conflict, right? A person can access healing resources, resilience resources, just simply based on the theme of, oh, there has been an overwhelming amount of graphic evidence, or there has been a glut of clients experiencing this type of difficulty, or even themes around types of conflicts. So it's not going to surprise anyone that we are conflict managers and therefore experience that impact. So we can think in terms and speak in terms of conflict impact themes as opposed to facts. We're going to take another break to hear from our advertisers when we return. We've talked lawyers, we've talked clients, we've talked a little bit about law students. Let's talk about the judges. Welcome back to this episode of the Modern Law Library. I'm here with Helgi Mackey. Let's hear from you about how judges can be thinking about trauma and preventing it in their courtrooms. I often ask my guests to read a portion uh, from the book, and I think that we have one from you right now that could do that. And get to some of the advice for judges about how they can be thinking about preventing trauma within their courtrooms. Yeah, I'll start the reading from the book, the quote, by saying that this is possibly one of the most important topics because when we were writing the book, we found that legal professionals all said that judges are really the gatekeepers. They are the leaders of the legal profession. And so they model to other legal professionals what is acceptable, what is the best practice, what in effect is leadership in the profession. And so this excerpt is written by Myrna McCollum. It's in chapter six on trauma and healing in legal systems on courts and judges. And her section is entitled, we need judges to embrace a trauma-informed judicial practice. And this is on practicing self-reflection. It is critical to understand that although you may have grown a quote, thick skin or believe yourself to be impervious to the effects of human suffering experienced by others, the same not, may not be true for those who are sitting in the courtroom with you. When trauma is invited in unchecked and allowed to take up space, so those present have no choice but to look at it and listen to it in all its damaging forms, do you ask yourself, what harm am I causing? What harm am I perpetuating against myself and those who work around me? Everyone needs a safe and healthy workplace, but not everyone experiences the workplace in this way. Oftentimes, safety and health in the legal workplace is eroded due to the continuous decisions of judges throughout a proceeding, which are not restricted to evidentiary issues and the conduct of direct and cross-examination of witnesses. These decisions include how they respond to counsel or witnesses, including the hostile or impatient messaging presenting in their demeanor, especially when frustrated with counsel, and extending to how they open and close the courtroom which communicate expressly and implicitly their role and relationship to the participants in the courtroom. Sometimes simply opening court with a pleasant good morning can go a long way to easing folks 
into what everyone knows could be a challenging workday. Even though some employee groups have unions representing their interests, not all employees will speak up when they experience harm for a variety of reasons. Trauma, sometimes, is a silencer. So I invite you to ask yourself, what is your responsibility for creating a safe and healthy workplace for yourself, litigants, lawyers, and court staff? Are you open and sufficiently welcoming so others can approach you with their traumatizing experiences? Your increased awareness on this issue, coupled with these self-reflection questions, are foundational to becoming a trauma-informed judge. Thank you so much for that passage. And yeah, I think that, you know, judges as courtroom managers, like you said, it's it's not about what the judge can take. It's about, you know, everyone in the courtroom is experiencing this together. Uh, you know, the ABA in the last annual meeting, passed, the House of Delegates passed a resolution asking that this be studied more, the kinds of stresses that judges and other courtroom workers experience as trauma, not just with this happening inside the courtrooms, but, you know, there's more targeting of judges on social media. There's the fear of danger within a courtroom. There's a lot going on. So I think it's wonderful that you are trying to involve judges in this conversation. Yeah, Myrna speaks about judges as courtroom managers, and I also like what Brian Stevenson has to say on this topic. And he doesn't aim it specifically at judges, he aims it at the legal profession in general. And he, in his ABA medal speech, spoke about how it is our responsibility to ensure that we manage difficulty and inconvenience. And he said in that speech that justice, there's no justice that's possible without difficulty, without discomfort without inconvenience. And so we need to resource ourselves to deal with all the discomforts, all the inconveniences that are involved in pursuing justice. I'm paraphrasing him there. I encourage you to check out that speech because basically he's talking about trauma-informed lawyering. Well, and I'd love to pivot to a different kind of, you know, room management and having difficult conversations. And that's in the context of law school. I loved what Marjorie Flores had to say about four things that professors could do uh, when thinking about how they handle their law school classes, and then three things that law students could be doing to prepare themselves for the classroom environment. I'm just going to read these because I just thought they were so insightful, and then I'd love to discuss them a little bit more with you. So on behalf of the professor, Marjorie urges them to, first of all, Begin with the assumption that students want to learn and are not seeking an easy way out. To just approach approach student requests uh, from that from that vantage point. Number two, assume that students have been traumatized. I don't know about you, but I've certainly been in situations where someone will say, "Oh, well, I wouldn't have said X if I'd known that someone in the room had experienced fill in the blank, or that someone in the room had that kind of background." And truly the easiest thing to do because you cannot tell from someone's outward appearance necessarily what traumas they have experienced is just assume that students have been traumatized. Three, learn to handle difficult conversations. And that's, you know, truly handling it, not just introducing a topic and then letting the classroom run wild. Uh, And then four, expand the canon and start bringing in more than just, you know, cases that, as she puts it, would have been introduced in the 1990s, seek out cases involving people from different cultural backgrounds, uh, things of that nature. 
And then for a law student, she suggests that they begin with the assumption that what happens in the classroom is not personal. Number two, recognize that imposter syndrome exists, as do structural and systemic barriers. Number three, seek out assistance to work through personal trauma. So I would just love to get your thoughts on this. I thought that this was uh, very insightful in talking about responsibilities that the professor would have, but also that the law student um, could proactively seek out in order to you know, fully participate and get everything that they can out of the law school experience. Yeah, I really enjoyed and valued this section of the book. Marjorie hits the nail on the head. You know, I was sitting in criminal law class in first year and listening to prof talk about cases that intersected with my life. And on the syllabus, the class syllabus, there was, you know, a 30-minute segment that was dedicated. It would it was scheduled to be dedicated to here we have victim impact statements. And so I had thought that maybe there would be some discussion about, you know, what happens, how that comes about, what it means for other stakeholders involved in the case. And I was disappointed when the prof basically said, here are, here's an outline of a victim impact statement. Here are the five points you need to make. Next case. And so what I found distressing about that class is we never found out what happened to anyone after the case. What happened to the accused? What happened to the victims? What happened to the witnesses? What also happened with the judge? Did they, you know, what happened with that case in general? And so again, it, it sort of places things in a vacuum instead of in a context, a social context, a personal context, or a cultural context with cultural competency, cultural humility, right? So when we make things impersonal, we verge on dehumanizing. And I think it's very important what Marjorie identifies in terms of these humanizing factors that can help us have sustainable careers as conflict managers in the legal profession. I would be remiss if I didn't uh, bring up the fact we haven't addressed it directly yet, but throughout the book, there are lengthy discussions about the fact that uh, trauma can be not only, you know, interpersonal one person on another person, but trauma can be experienced because of race, because of gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation. There are a lot of different ways that trauma comes to us. Intersectionality means that you may be facing multiple parts of your identity that make you more of a target for traumatic experiences. So I would love to hear more from you about how you and your co-editors went about addressing the intersectionality of trauma, the generational trauma, the, the different ways that we may be impacted by our identity, not just as, as people, but also as members of different classes. Yeah, what we very much tried to do in a way that I, I am sure isn't perfect and can't be perfect is to place these concepts, place the material, place the helpful resources in a humanizing context and seek stories, seek contributions, seek perspectives from people who have, who carry these intersectionalities and can speak to them, not only professionally, but also personally. And so it's so important to do that. I think that we do a, a disservice to future generations 
in the legal profession because they're looking to us in terms of, oh, you know, do I belong in this profession? What can I do for my community if I'm affected by a disability or factor that predisposes me to be a target of discrimination, racism, et cetera, including at the systemic level? And so we try to include as many perspectives as we could. And really trauma-informed practice is a practice of including, of including perspectives, of including social context, of including cultural competency, cultural humility, as we phrase it in the book, uh, as opposed to cultural competence. And I would love to um, target that because I wanted to bring that up. Cultural humility, I thought was such an interesting phrase. And if you would expand on that, what that means, what that approach is, cultural humility. So I encourage you to actually read Myrna's section of the book on that and also seek out her podcast because from a cultural perspective, I am not uh, the holder of a first-person perspective that can speak to all aspects of that. However, cultural humility is a perspective that arises from the public health context, specifically nursing and the originators of that concept who are named in the book come from that perspective. And so the general idea is to not center our own culture, not to place our own culture and our assumptions around that first in terms of when we are in service as professionals to another person. And so one of the original examples from the cultural humility work is in a health context, if you're working with someone who uh, whose life is in danger and maybe they this will be their last week of life, you cannot assume what their needs are. You can't assume, oh, we need to call this type of religious figure or we need to you know, say these specific words. We need to ask a lot of questions and uh, including what are your preferences? What, what is your tradition? What, what are the rituals that would be applicable? What would be most helpful to you? We can't assume around language, orientation, any of those factors. In, in trauma, for instance, we cannot assume what word people will use. In certain languages, there isn't necessarily a direct word for trauma. It's spoken about in different terms. So we need to have humility. We need to not place ourselves first. We need to place the client or the other stakeholder that we're working with first and see things through their perspective, through their lens. To close out, Helgi, I would love to talk about another piece that we may not have gotten to yet, which is that you intended this to also address the systemic issue of trauma in the legal profession. So could we get into that a little bit? What are you hoping beyond just the individual levels? Obviously, we're hoping that lawyers, that clients, that judges, that law students can individually address this and approach these things in ways that are helpful to them individually. But when it comes to systemic issues within the legal profession, what are you hoping to accomplish? What we're hoping to accomplish is to reduce the barriers to access to justice that trauma presents. So if someone has been through a damaging situation and then they're asked to talk about that in a courtroom and be cross-examined on it, right, that can be experienced as a second form of harm. They already have experienced damage. They've already experienced something that has hurt them personally or at other levels too. And so when we ask someone to go through another process where they're going through all of that pain over again, 
Unfortunately, right now, we're doing it without really any best practices often or any rules other than maybe around the gladiator mentality. We know that everyone will be challenging towards whoever is speaking, whether they are a victim or a witness or an accused or whatever other label is given. And we do also in the background, of course, have our rules of professional conduct and best interest of the client. And so really it's about taking further steps in context to understand what the best interests of the client really are so that they can be resourced to pursue justice. Something that was so striking to me in writing this book was how many times I heard people say the damage of the claim was bad enough. The original harm I experienced about this legal issue was bad enough. Going to court made it worse. In what other service profession would we not think about changing our rules if we heard that? If we heard that in a hospital or in any other service profession context, we would go, oh, wow, our service made this worse. And that's not what we're here to do. That is the opposite of what we're here to do. Well, hey, Luki, thank you so much for coming to speak with us uh, about Trauma-Informed Law, a primer for lawyer resilience and healing. I urge anyone who enjoyed our conversation, go look up Myrna McCallum's podcast. It's called The Trauma-Informed Lawyer. She has additional discussions with many experts. She talks about more in depth some of the concepts that we have raised. So I, I really encourage people to do that. If people want to pick up the book or reach out and hear more from you, Helgi, how could they do that? Yeah, absolutely. I have a website, uh, which is called traumainformedlaw.org. There's also my personal website, helgimackey.com. The book is available through the ABA bookstore. And I also have a, a group on LinkedIn, uh, Trauma-Informed Law and Legal Practice. So happy to connect with you there. Uh, there's also a tw- Twitter account, at Trauma Law, which is more like a, a knowledge base where you can access some articles. And whatever way is convenient for you, you can connect with those resources, specifically on my website, traumainformedlaw.org. I have a free download, which is a frequently asked questions and answers primer so that you can start having this be a support for your daily legal practice, uh, your professional practice, and also personally, and some language so you can speak with uh, colleagues about it as well. And some people like to take this further with, I do trainings, speaking, and also coaching. So happy to receive inquiries about that as well. And the main point is that we have the knowledge and understanding to make the profession better for the next generation of lawyers. We have the ability to make the legal practice more amenable to clients, more client-friendly so that they can have a more satisfactory legal process that's less harmful and also to improve the system as a whole. So we have these tools. They're just stuck and fragmented uh, in dusty law journals and things like that. So the idea is to make it user-friendly and start using these tools. Well, thank you so much to Helgi for joining us. And thank you to you, my listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service. If you have a book that you think would make an interesting episode, you can always reach out to me at books at abajournal.com. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library.